the Bain Free Radio Hour. Now on the podcast, David Weber without end. Amen. A consultation with documenters of the Honorverse, View 9. The wonder of eARCs, reading books before the author writes them. Almost. And part eight of our continuing serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up is our roundtable discussion with the David Weber Honorverse Technical Consulting Consortium that goes by the mysterious name of BU9. We'll meet and talk with these folks shortly, but since it's possible that we won't get out of that interview alive, first, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey joins us for some news. Want to fill you in, oh listener, on a few upcoming Bain Free Radio Hour podcasts out there on the eternal event horizon. We have Eric Flint and Reich E. Spohr scheduled to discuss their science fiction novel Portal, the finale to the Boundary series. Aliens in this solar system, Laura, they're here. It's going to be a, a, a very satisfying conclusion to the trilogy, I think. And it's got a very evocative Bob Eggleton cover. Oh, yeah, that cover is beautiful. I think it's my favorite cover of this year. Uh, we're going to have uh, also, uh, speaking of, doesn't Eggleton do the some of the Heinlein covers? He does. He's yeah. done all of the Heinlein juveniles that uh, that we've reissued, and I think he's done a tremendous job with those. Yeah, we're going to have a Heinlein roundtable with uh, Robert A. Heinlein biographer William H. Patterson, and also along will be Wynn Spencer, who wrote the afterword to Bain's reissue of the Heinlein classic The Star Beast, which is out in mass market this month. So if you want to be super ready, listeners, read The Star Beast and then pick up a copy of Bill Patterson's Heinlein biography. It's a very large biography. It's next <laughs> up on my to-be-read stack. Well, I, I think it's a great biography. I... I usually hate science fiction biographies. They're either hagiographic puff or a big stinking pile of ancient gossip um, that I don't care about much. But this one is really good. He's, he's done a wonderful job. It's a, it's a great biography, and Bill will be able to tell us lots about the period of Heinlein's life when he was writing those Scribner ju- juveniles, as they're called, uh, such as the Star Beast. So it sounds like you've got some pretty definite opinions on about uh, what makes a good biography. We'll ask Bill what he likes. I'll trust his opinion. Also on the podcast, we're going to have a discussion on A.E. Van Vaux with David Drake and Eric Flint, and maybe we'll resolve the issue of how to pronounce A.E. Van Vaux's name with them. Or maybe we won't. Maybe it'll be like Schrodinger's cat. How do you say Schrodinger anyway? Also an interview with Wynn Spencer on her upcoming novel, Eight Million Gods, and much more. We have a new pod posted every Friday at noon, so subscribe, download, and enjoy. Now, be on the lookout for two great eARCs that are now available at Bain eBooks. An eARC is the sound a yak makes when it gets milked by a herdsman whose hands are frostbitten, isn't it, Laura? I have never actually heard of a yak being milked 
by a herdsman with the uh, frostbitten hands. And an eARC is actually an electronic advanced reader copy, and it comes out about uh, four to six months before the book is published, and it's full of typos. It's pretty much straight from the author's uh, hands to you, the readers. But yeah, but you get it. Uh, you get it beforehand. So if you're, you've really been waiting for that, for instance, we have uh, the new Ringo that's out. Now, if you've been waiting a while for John's uh, for a book from John, we have a new Ringo out. We also have first off, we have Warbound, book three of the Grimnor Chronicles. This is Larry Correa's super cool, super noir urban fantasy series that is set in a really tough 1930s where magic works and Tommy guns also work. This is uh, the sequel to Spellbound and Hard Magic by Larry, of course, is the creator of best-selling Monster Hunter International. Yeah, yeah. Go He's ahead. done his history research, so it's a good look at that time period in American history, too. And since it's Larry Correa, you know he'll get the guns right. Check it out. Warbound is now available in eARC form. And we have John Ringo's long-anticipated science-based zombie novel, Under Graveyard Sky. Uh, this is about a young woman, her family, who take to the seas to escape the zombie plague, but the only safety they can truly have is to fight back. And you can get it right now in eARC form. Both of these eARCs are available at BaneEbooks.com. David Weber's Honor Harrington military science fiction series is, of course, one of the best-selling science fiction sagas of all time. Part of the reason for this is the wonderful and wonderfully intricate and deeply thought-out setting for the novels. Now, these books revolve around the exploits of the Royal Manticoran Navy, a spaceship battling force serving a plucky galactic power, the Star Kingdom of Manticore. It may be the Star Empire of Manticore now. I'm going to ask them to uh, ask our guests to clarify that, which sits at the nexus of a bunch of shortcut passages used for shipping between the stars. Uh, just out in hardcover, we have a very special project called House of Steel, the Honorverse Companion. Now, this contains a short novel by David Weber called I Will Build My House of Steel, which is the story of one of the key historical figures in Honor Harrington's day, King Roger III. This is the story of when he was a mere lieutenant in the Manicorn Navy. But the book also contains something wonderful a magnificent compilation of background material on what has come to be known as the Honorverse. This was put together by an entity going by the mysterious moniker of Bu9. We're very pleased to have assembled here today several of the key members of Bu9, the Honorverse Amateur Consulting Group. Also with us is Tony Weiskopf, Bain publisher and my boss. Hi, Tony. Hi, Tony Daniel. Now, the head honcho of Bu9 is Tom Pope. Tom, can you tell us a bit more about Bu9 and introduce everyone, if you would? Bu9 uh, is a group of uh, Honorverse fans um, who have been working with David for um, last almost a decade. Um, we've been working on um, material for David both for the game originally with that Astro Games called Saginami Island Tactical Simulator, moving on from there to um, some technical material that we worked with, again, with that Astro, and um, migrated from there to um, what David calls his, his tech guys, as it were. Um, we work with him detailing sort of the 
filling in the background, filling in the bits behind the honorverse, um, kind of giving giving structure to some of the some of the um, some of the things that he's already been building. Um, the group has approximately two dozen people, of which I've invited to this talk. Um, invited six of us um, who were most um, who did the most work on on the companion. Tom, can you introduce everybody in B9 to us that's with us today? Of course. Um, who we've got with us today are um, the six people who did most of the, the majority of the work on the companion. Um, we have Chris Reeve, who was the copy editor and style editor for the companion. Um, we've got Gina Robinson. Gina was our uh, author wrangler, as we like to call her, and she also did a great deal of editing work behind the scenes as well as some writing. Um, Thomas Moroni was our lead artist with almost all of the interior artwork, um, both the color plates and the line art. Joelle Presby was one of the key contributors, especially for the grace inspection. And Mark Gudis um, was, um, I call him my troubleshooter at large. He's done Everything I've needed to be done, editing, nitpicking, writing, um, researching, um, just sort of anything that needed to be done for the work, Mark was there to pick up the slack. Um, and the companion itself had about 24 people that, we worked, that worked on this project all told, um, but those are the key people that we have here. So let's talk about the Honorverse Companion. Now, Tony Weisskopf, Bain Publisher, can you tell us a little bit about how this project originally got started and how Bunine became involved? Well, these guys have been working with David Weber for um, for over a decade um, on uh, providing support and, and continuity and answering technical questions in the Honorverse. But the actual concept for the Honorverse uh, has been around as long as there has been an idea for the Honorverse. Um, way back more than 20 years ago when we asked David to um, send us some suggestions for new series that we'd like to um, do more more work with David. He sent us a uh, a set of four different series that he'd like to work on, and Jim and I unanim unanimously picked um, the Honor Harrington books as uh, as what we'd like to see David do next. Um, and David admitted to me that at that point, oh good, because I've got a huge amount of background material, maybe 50 or 100 pages on this one series. And I was very impressed by that. And I jokingly said to him, well, you know what? When it's a New York Times bestselling series, we're going to do a companion volume. And he laughed and I laughed. And I said, don't throw out that material. And he didn't. And it did become a New York Times bestselling series. And 20 years later, later, it became obvious that that not only would it be an, a nice idea to do this, we really, really needed an Honorverse Companion out there. Um, so that, that's how the idea for the Companion component um, of the book came about. Um, now, David being David, he's always thinking about ways to maximize uh, the coverage um, of, his, of his books. And he said, you know, tell you what, 
just to make it interesting, rather than just have the support material for the Honor Harrington universe, all the histories and the the, the color pages and the ranks and the technical um, uh, specs on the, the ships and so forth, let me just throw in a short story there just to make it um, extra special. And I said, sure, David, you know, if it's not going to take time away from your, from your very, very busy novel writing uh, schedule, you know, we'd be happy to do that. Now... I'm not sure how long the um, uh, I Will Build My House of Steel is, but it ain't no short story. It is a David Weber short story. Um, Tony, did, did you recall how long it is? 70,000 words, something like that? 60,000 words? I think it's longer than in the novel. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is, it is we would, it basically... In the old days, we would have called that a science fiction novel, I think. For sure. <laughs> Very very true. That, that that would that would have made two two sides of an ace double for sure. Um, so it's a very meaty, big chunk of uh, interesting Honor Harrington fiction, along with all the other really really cool stuff um, that David and View Nine have put together. Now, it's 183 about... pages, I see. <laughs> Yeah. Now I know about how how the story came about, but I um but for me the the Bu9 part is magic. So I'm just as interested as everybody else in in hearing how how all the parts came together. It it started really with the James technical guides that we did for Ad Astra Games. Um we built a lot of material for the Manticoran Navy when we were working on SIP. Um, Second on the island tactical simulator, and we built all this all of this material and published it as part of the game. And realized that there was an audience for the material on the starships and the navy and the uniforms that was separate from the audience for the game itself. Um, so, at um, some point, a number of years after this came out. Thomas and I uh, sat down and, and started looking at what we had and what we've been working on, um, both for ourselves, for David. Um, we had a lot of projects that were just done simply for fun uh, that we had lying in the archives. And we started to look and see if we could put this together into something that was uh, publishable. Um, we talked with Ken Burnside, who was running at Astro Games at the time, and he liked the idea. So we collected this material. We had a marathon six months of um, work collecting, the, building the uniforms, building the rank insignia, fleshing out the ship class history, fleshing out the artwork, and put together this guide to the Manticoran Navy, or at least a, a, a semi-guide. Um, that was followed about a year later by um, James II, which covered the Haven of the Navy. Again, just pieces of it, uh, not the entire Navy. And we the material from then on um, as G9 grew as an organization, as we formalized ourselves as as G9, as opposed to just those guys who tested David all the time. Um, we kept that material, and we started to move into growing it, mostly for internal use. Um, I started to talk with David much more often. Um, we were starting to talk about ship designs and naval de Navy designs, how many ships were built. And it got to the point where um, when David was looking at building a new ship class, he would run some of the numbers by me. He would say, how many of the ship that does these things and it needs to be about this big and it's about this, this, this capability. 
And I'd start to look at the, at the work we'd already done and see how to fit that into the numbers we'd already crunched. And the project really, it grew from there, and it grew from there as this internal library that we've been keeping. Well, Tom, this thing is is beyond a mere glossary, the companion. I mean, there's a signature of 16 color pages of uniforms, insignias, drawings, diagrams, things like that. Who did who did what? Uh, you, you have worked at history, sections on manticore and legal matters, and just pages and pages of these really cool specifications on ships. They almost seem like characters to me, uh, reading through it. The, the <laughs> loving detail that, that everyone put into the into the ships and everything else. Can each person that had something to do with these sections give us a little rundown of what particularly went into it for them to create these things, how they um, made sure it was accurate, but yet put the kind of background that they brought to the table into the work? Um, yeah, let's start with, um, I think everybody here has got something they could say on that topic. Let's start with um, Mark Goodis. Mark worked on a lot on the politics and the legal system for um, both Manticore and Grayson. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm also the, the, the new kid on the block. I, I came to uh, View 9 uh, two years ago. I had been part of the Royal Manticore and Navy, which is the official fan club. And, and just just from, from my myself, just because I enjoyed doing it, I had, as I read the, the novel, I had created my own index of the... Uh, uh, of the honorverse, if, if you will. And I offered it to the, the head of the Royal Manticore and Navy uh, as something that they could uh, give to, to, to the members. He passed it on to Tom, and Tom said, well, let, let's get Mark in. And the, the first couple meetings that I sat in on, I, I was sitting there thinking, why am I here? Because I, I, have, I have no technical skills. I, I'm a lawyer by, by trade and uh, a social scientist by background. And it, it took me a while to, to, to feel comfortable with the group, and, and I realized that my niche was, was within the, the, the jurisprudence, the, the legal community of the, uh, the Star Nations in the Honorverse, as, as well as the government, uh, and, uh, and which, is, which is the real uh, nitty-gritty kind of work I, I've done. And I, I just... I have a lot of, of spare time, so when, whenever Tom called and, and said, "Hey, can can you can you run over this for me?" You know, I, I had the time to do it and and was happy to do it, and uh, just really loved being involved. Well, Mark, let me just ask you one thing: you realize that the universe is entirely made up by David Weber, correct? <laughs> As a right. lawyer by day. Why do you want to do the law by night? Um, what is it about this that attracts you so much? To well, one thing uh, is it's an area of technical expertise that I have, uh, but it, it's fun for me to be able to uh, to to do something which is just fun that has to do with the law. Uh, the, the practice of law itself is really not a a fun profession. Working with the Honorverse and, and working with BU9 and, and David is it's just a it's a thrill for me, and it it just it, it enables me to use the the legal background that I have, and do something that that's just a lot of fun with it. Who else do we have, Tom? Well, we have um I think I'd like to hear from Thomas Maroney because Thomas really has built 
um, over the course of the last um, five, seven years has, has really sort of defined the visual style of the Honorverse as, as our sometimes only and always lead artist. Um, so Thomas, do you want to say a little bit about that, about the work he's done? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, like Tom said earlier, um, kind of uh, View 9 has its roots in work that Tom and I did uh, way back um, in kind of in the pre-companion days. Um, uh, just kind of uh, after work, we would kind of get on Instant Messenger and um, we would talk about the things in the universe and kind of sketch out ideas and argue about, no, it should look like this, it should look like this, this is what it has to do. <laughs> um, to kind of go back a bit, um, I, I discovered the Anna Harrington uh, universe in college um, long before I knew about Tom Pope or at SR Games or long before being nine even existed. And, um, you know, it really, it really caught my imagination. Um, I've always been a Star Trek fan, and one of the, the things I liked about Star Trek was kind of the you know, the, the military aspect of, of Starfleet and the naval traditions and stuff that they, they touch on. And, and here it was, it was much more concentrated and, and interesting. I didn't have a lot of, uh, friends who, who read military science fiction. So I started reading the Harrington Universe in college and really caught my imagination. A college, um, project was, um, doing concept art for a hypothetical on a Harrington movie. Uh, so that's kind of how when I started exploring the Honor Harrington Universe visually, uh, it started in college, and, and for I graduated, one of the things I did in my spare time was to either do um, drawings based on uh, the Iron Harrington universe, a lot of technical drawings uh, of the starships, and I posted uh, some of these illustrations on the Ad Astra forums, uh, Tom Hutchins, the Saginaw Island Tactical Simulator, and, and that was a revelation for me because it was one of the places um, that, that did actually have some interesting art. Uh, for, for the Yawning Harrington Starships and things like that. So, um, so Tom saw my post there and he contacted me and asked if I want to get involved and uh, help out at Astra and, and kind of develop the visual style of the Yawning Harrington universe more. Thomas, so you're responsible for most of the drawings in our great color signature in the companion. All of the, the actual final artwork, uh, I, I executed. Um, and, and some of that was based on early work that Tom and I had done as far back as as the James uh, book he mentioned for Ad Astra, and we just kind of looked at that stuff and, and kept the things that we're still we're still satisfied with, and made some changes on other things that we felt we could improve on. Can you walk us through how you go about drawing a an accurate rendition of a David Weber spaceship? Yeah, uh, thankfully at, at the point of when we started working on the, the companion, there was a lot of information for us to, to work with in the book. So it was a matter of taking those and and taking things that we had developed kind of in the background in our spare time uh, and, and things that like we had done for Astra and, and kind of fusing all that together to something that felt consistent with the books, just kind of melding all that stuff together into a design that, that we liked. Now, do you guys workshop these things? You do the you do the drawings or you write? or For the artwork? Yeah. Well, how do you work together as a group is what I'm asking. Um, it, it depends a lot on... Um, which which piece of it, uh, which piece of the project we're talking about? But all of the material that we put together is very consensual based, and we'll put together a a quick outline that that someone will throw together. This is what the section needs to say, or this is what the artwork needs to look like, and um, start out with comments from the entire group. I mean, for for the 
the six people we've got here, there's another 18 people who are in the background doing a lot of work um, in early sketches and ideas and anecdotes from their own military service or ideas from other you know, other material that they've been working on. Um, a lot of these, a lot of parts of the companion um, grew out of pet projects. Someone would have an idea that they wanted to explore, and they've been exploring it for three or four years. They just said, Tom, I want to play with this. And I would give them all the material that we'd collected and let them go play. And then we'd try to refine that down to getting um, a sort of solid core of material. Joelle had a very unique role in this. Um, I, she kind of got tricked into it um, in some <laughs> ways. Um, and and Joelle really, she she saved me from Grayson uh, in, in The Companion. Um, she took on um, basically all of the non-starship pieces of the protector of Grayson and, and really took lead on it and, and it, in many ways, did my job. Grayson is is a is a, a ally of Manticore, so it's a separate, Grayson, entire Grayson, separate thing that you've got to get all the the details right about. Correct. It's an entirely separate star nation. It has they have their own system. Obviously, they have their own culture, uh, their own religion, their own navy with its own traditions, and um, and so it, it while it, while they're an ally and they use much of the same hardware towards the end of the war. Uh, they really are a, a uniquely different uh, group and uniquely different star nation in the Honorverse. Um, and so Joelle can probably talk a little bit more about how she approached this, um, but she did a lot of work on just putting together the putting together Grayson based on the template that was in constant motion that we were working on for Manticore. I, I don't feel like I was like I was tricked into this this project. I I really enjoyed it. Uh, Grayson was really interesting to me because a lot of a lot of the challenges and the, the stories of the Honorverse, which I love, are really far future. And that makes some of our present day problems such distant history that they've been not just solved but forgotten. Grayson, from my perspective, is is more like us and has more of our current problems still present in their society. And they have a detailed and elaborate history of why some of those issues are still around. Um, and there's also a lot a lot less in the books about Grayson, in the published storybooks, than, than there is about Manicore. And so there are a lot more pieces that could be filled in and worked with from notes David had and from places here and there in the novels that are about Grayson. And so I had actually a spreadsheet of every single time in all the books and short stories that Grayson was mentioned or a Grayson character was mentioned just to try to make sure that I got it really accurate. It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun to do. Now, can, can you tell us a little bit, um, uh, you served in, in the U.S. military, um, and I, I, my first introduction to you was your short story that you did for us uh, for the website, the Dispatches from Grayson, uh, which are from a, a female 
uh, Grayson um, officer who's serving in the uh, the Manticore Navy, and I found those really fascinating. Did did you draw on your own experience uh, when when you were working on that? Well, I I certainly couldn't have have written them if I didn't have my own experience, but they are they are entirely fictional. Um, I, I have had people ask me if that really happened, but actually, no, I have, I have never been to space, and so there are many things uh, that happened okay. in those stories that have not happened to me or anyone I know. Uh, but yes, I, I'm a, a former naval officer. I graduated from the Naval Academy and uh, was in the Navy for six or so years. So, Joelle, I'll put to you the same question I put to uh, Mark. Uh, since this is about space navies, um, what is it that attracts you, a Navy person, to uh, David Weber's universe? It is all made up, but the first thing that drew me in was the character of Honor Harrington, an extremely successful naval officer, granted space Navy officer, who has none of my problems at all. The the wish fulfillment of how how things could be, and then there's so much greater problems to be solved in the the day to day admin that that happens in in the real Navy. It sounds like David got the um, culture of the military um, down well enough so that it doesn't feel wrong. To you, yes, it, it certainly feels right, um, and part of it is I was I was not just assigned in the United States. Um, my first ship was in Japan, and so I spent a lot of time working with uh, other militaries, and so there there's a very there, there's a lot of different kinds of military cultures that that are still that are still military. And so he could have done a a lot of things, and it would have still come rung through to me. Okay. I think Chris has yet to to, yeah. to tell us about what he contributed here. Yeah, Chris Chris had an interesting role in the Honorverse. He, he was, um, as I mentioned in the beginning, Chris, Chris was our copy editor. Um, though the, what he really did was a little bit larger than that. Um, he was um, uh, for the companion, Chris. Chris helped not only with the copy editing, so the, the, the default typo catching and, and, and everything else, but he also helped to take all of these disparate pieces of um, text and, and smooth them into one coherent whole. Um, Chris also had a kind of unique outlook at the beginning of this project, and he can probably tell you a little bit more about that. And Chris, that would be your cue. That's your doing cue. Okay. Um, let's see, as Tom said, I spent a lot of time uh, trying to make sure that the entire document uh, didn't look like it was written by a disparate group of people, but actually had a common voice. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about David's uh, short novel at the front. I'm talking about everything from page 184 on. And in the process of doing that, um, I offloaded the actual comma wrangling to another member named Kay Shelton, a friend of mine who is retired and who, when she heard that I was working on this project, immediately said, ooh, can I help? So she's the one who made sure that the commas were all in the right place. 
And that allowed me to sort of focus more on the stylistic elements of it. And in addition to that, occasionally I would find that there were little holes. Like, for instance, in the Manticore section, we did A, B, C, D. But in the Grayson section, we did A, B, D, E. So there's some stuff that didn't quite match. So there was lots of going back to Tom and saying, okay, you need to send this back to whoever wrote that section. We need to fill in this part. Or, you know, we need to find somebody who who can talk the language of how parliamentary democracies work. Because we need somebody who can actually be authentic when they're talking about that. So I, I spent a lot of time sort of trying to find all that stuff, putting it all together. Um, I also wrote a an essay at the end that um, that I started off and wrote a couple of thousand words and then David picked up and ran with it, talking about all the different pieces that you need when you're building a Navy. One of the things that I've always been impressed in talking with David is that when you – I'm a, I'm a naval analyst by trade. Um, I spent 11 years working for the Navy, either directly or indirectly, the last five years as a professor at the Naval War College. I'm also a graduate of the Naval War College. And I could go and have a conversation with David. And once I sort of said, Here, here's what, what the issue is, he could immediately explain to me how the Manticorans or the Graysons or anybody else in the novel approached a given problem. Well, you did a wonderful job. I mean, this thing, I was reading it um, over the weekend, and it just, it flows together, and it feels like I'm reading some sort of Jane's uh, arms review document or or uh, a report on on something very real. It's uh, it, it really has a, a feeling of authenticity, and perhaps that uh, that explains it. Do we have anybody else that is Gina? Yes, Gina. Um, Gina has had a even more interesting role, I think, than some of the others here because she started, obviously Gina is David's personal assistant, so she spent a lot of time with David, and she was um, our um, interface to David, or interface to David's schedule. I was talking with David long before I met Gina, um, but Gina really was helping us wrangle David's schedule and, and find time for him to review this. Um, I worked mostly um, for the companion. I worked mostly with Tom. Uh, Tom has the amazing ability to talk about pretty much any aspect of the honor work and just give you facts, figures, and data um, off the top of his head. And so what he could do is he could give us give us these downloads um, of information, and then what I could do is take that and shape it into something readable. And um, we worked together fairly efficiently. It it worked out that he could, you know, he could give me the content of what was supposed to be in a section, and I could make it into a readable section. And um, so that actually worked really well. Um, I got involved with D9 because um, I just really love the people. <laughs> um, they're a great group of people, and it seems like a fun project. And even though I do it during my day job, it was just—it was a heck of a ride. <laughs> can you can you tell us then that uh, everything in here has the personal a- approval of uh, David? Absolutely. David went through the manuscript three separate times, um, and he went through it first. Uh, 
uh, in pieces. Um, then uh, he went through it again after Chris had gotten it together, and then he went through it a final time after it was assembled into a whole. So um, he he absolutely was very happy with the final result. I'd just like to give a shout-out to uh, Modine Moon, who is the longtime copy editor for the books in the series. Um, and I know that that um, her style sheet for the Honor Harrington series is long and vast. And um, and I yeah. think uh, you guys uh, were, were able to coordinate with her to make sure that um, everybody was on the same page with ship names and so on. She was a lot of help. Tony, when... Um... When did David come to you with this and say, this should be a book? Obviously, you t had talked about it um, perhaps facetiously at the very beginning of when he first started writing the Honor Harrington stories. Yeah, when we decided to do the 20th anniversary edition of uh, On Basilisk Station, uh, we realized that it was uh, that it was time um, for, for for this material to be uh, to be shared with the with the readers. Um, um, the uh, we we mentioned the uh, Royal Manticore Navy, the the fan group that's uh, grown up around um, David's work, and uh, we started to see uh, them in costume at uh, different conventions. Um, and I, th I think there was there was just a, a recognition that we'd like to do something for the you know the, the really dedicated Honor Harrington fans. Um, so it uh, the, the the time seemed ripe for that. So, Tom, uh, you folks seem to be having an amazing amount of fun doing this stuff. What what are the what are Bu Nine's are. plans in the for the future? Wait, wait, I have a question. Sure. Where, where did you oh, guys yeah. get the term Bu Nine from? Um, at, at a certain point, we decided that we had become we we wanted to formalize ourselves as something. Um, and the the original idea was to call ourselves the ONI Tech Team Nine um, from um, Tim Zahn's short story With One Stone. There was the ONI Tech Teams, um, and I just sort of picked a number at random, figuring it was high enough that there probably wasn't one. Um, after a little bit of discussion internally and with David, um, he suggested that we instead go with Bureau Nine, um, based on the Manticore and Navy's bureau systems. They have View ships and view weps and view purrs. There were seven of them, and nine was, a, a, again, a safe number because it wasn't being used. There were also nine original members uh, at the time when we sort of formalized ourselves for nine members of the group. So, Tom, plans for the future. What uh, What's next in store for BU9? Are you going to continue consulting with David Weber? Um, do you have other publications in mind? What's What's up? Well, absolutely, we can continue consulting with David. Um, anything that he needs, we'll, we'll provide, of course. And we, all of us, enjoy this work. Um, uh, the final um, piece on our plate, and certainly the biggest one this year, is that we've been asked to coordinate uh, HonorCon, first official Honor Harrington convention um, that will be this November. And I'll actually let Gina talk a little bit about that because she is the, the, the co-chair of the convention committee of BU9, as it were. Um, HonorCon is being held in Greenville, South Carolina, and it's the weekend of November 1st through 3rd of 2013. Basically, we are celebrating 20 years in the world of Honor Harrington. So um, we've got great plans. Um, 
We've got some really interesting programming. Um, we've got contests that include um, uh, things as varied as a storytelling contest, um, a Lego building contest, an HonorCon Family Feud contest. We also have some really wonderful opportunities for those for those guests who want the personal David experience. We're selling VIP tickets. The tickets are going to be um, include time in the green room. They include a stateroom dinner with David and Sharon. Um, the VIP membership um, will be donating um, money from charity to charity, Heroes for Children. Um, one of David's personal friends, Bruce Graham, lost his son, Indiana Graham, to cancer last year. And um, Bruce helped us choose this charity because um, Heroes for Children helped support his family the whole time Indiana was sick during the eight years that Indiana fought with this. So we're really excited about it. Gina, where can we find uh, where can we find HonorCon on the web if we want to find out more about it and who the guests might be? HonorCon.org is the website. Um, we're really excited about the guests this year. Um, Evergreen Films is the production company that will be doing um, the David Weber feature film for Honor Harrington. Um, is going to be there, and they're going to do a two-hour um, program on Friday that's going to outline the upcoming feature film, and it's going to be the first sneak peek ever. Um, our fan guest of honor will be Joe Buckley. We have, Is this the famous um, Joe Buckley that often dies in Bane novels? Yes, the famous Joe Buckley who's been dead so many times. Uh, I see. <laughs> that, that, is, that is a coup. I, I don't think he's been a guest at a con ever before. And Tom Pope. Tell us how yep. we can look in on Bunine's doings. You can find us on the web at bunine.org, uh, B-U-N-I-N-E.org. Bunine blog is bunineblog.wordpress.com. Excellent. Excellent. I want to thank you all for joining us today. The, it, the book is David Weber's House of Steel and the Honorverse Companion with Bunine. It's out at bookstores now. Thank you all. Thanks, Bu9. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for having us. And now we continue with our most excellent audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now if you're not a subscriber. You can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. I'm a long-time subscriber, and I enjoy the service a lot. Okay, here's what has gone before. The various systems of the Talbot Quadrant are now allied with Honor Harrington's Parliamentary Monarchy, the Star Kingdom of Manticore. The trouble is brewing on the border between the Talbot Quadrant and the ancient crumbling Solarian League. We open on Halkirk, a planet in the Loomis system under the thumb of the autocratic Solis. The planet's bloodthirsty, tyrannical rulers are in cahoots with Solarian League interests to bleed the system dry of natural resources while keeping the inhabitants under the boot heel of local dictatorship. While Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hankey Countess Goldpeak sympathizes with the rebels. 
she lacks the resources to come to their aid. Yet. Goldpeat wants to pick her own time and place to confront the Sollies, who are still an immensely powerful force. You don't poke the Empire without it poking back. But an operative of the mysterious Mason alignment is attempting to do a bit of poking in the guise of an RMN agent. His purpose, provoke the Solarian League and Manticore into a full-fledged war and walk away with the spoils. A small team in the RMN intelligence service is on to the Mason alignment plot. The question is, can they communicate their information on the Mason treachery back home to Manticore in time for it to do any good? Here is part eight of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 7 Vice Admiral Goldpeak stood in the late-night quiet of her day cabin in a pair of comfortably worn sweats and fluffy purple tree-cat bedroom slippers. Her shoulders were hunched, her hands were shoved deep into her sweatshirt's pockets, and she glowered, undeniably she glowered, at the outsized holographic display. One side of that display showed a detailed, if small-scale, schematic of the spindle system. The other side showed a breakdown of her current fleet strength. If she'd cared to turn her head and look at the smart wall behind her, she would have seen a star chart of the entire Talbot quadrant as well. At the moment, however, she was concentrating fairly hard on not looking at that chart, since she found herself rather in the position of someone with insufficient icing to cover the birthday cake she'd just been given. Hell of a birthday party, she reflected morosely. Although, to be fair, it wouldn't be her birthday, her 64th birthday to be precise, for another two days. Given the amount of time she'd spent trundling around the universe at relativistic velocities, her subjective age was a good three years less than that, but no one worried about that when it came time to keeping track of birthdays, and the Royal Manticoran Navy used its own calendar, not someone's subjective experience, to determine relative seniority as well. She considered that last point for a moment, then grimaced as she thought about the rank insignia sitting in the upper drawer of the desk behind her. The ones she would be allowed to officially pin onto her uniform collar in two days— I can just see Beth grinning all over her face when she saw the official date of rank. Hell, for that matter, I'll bet she damned well had the original date changed to make sure it fell on my birthday. Just the sort of thing she'd do. There could be disadvantages to being the Empress of Manticore's first cousin and next in line for the crown after Elizabeth Winton's two children and her brother— especially for someone who'd spent her entire career aggressively fighting even the appearance of nepotism. She remembered the day her best friend had ripped a strip off of her for the way her avoidance of anything which could have been construed as preferential treatment had slowed her career, and the memory made her snort in amusement. Well, I've made up for it since, haven't I, Honor? Forty-one years from the Academy to Vice-Admiral— then only eleven team months to full admiral. Talk about a career catching fire. Of course, her amusement faded. It would have been nice if the rest of the galaxy hadn't decided to catch fire right along with it. She shook her head as the weight of those waiting admiral stars ground down upon her. 
She wondered sometimes if perhaps the real reason she'd so zealously avoided favoritism was because she'd feared the responsibilities that came with exalted rank and hadn't wanted to admit it to herself. She'd certainly found herself wishing over the last year or so that she could have handed the ones currently bearing down on her to someone else. She imagined there was a lot of that going around, too. She inhaled deeply and gave herself an impatient shake. Brooding about the unfairness of the universe was about the least effective way of dealing with that unfairness she could think of, and she made herself refocus her attention on the numbers and ship names before her. While there might be a few people who suspected her rapid promotion was due primarily to who she'd chosen as a cousin, there were undoubtedly a lot more who saw it as a reward for Tenth Fleet's smashing triumph in the Battle of Spindle. For that matter, there was almost certainly a political element in it as well, since the promotion was yet another way for Empress Elizabeth. Michelle was still working on remembering her cousin was an empress these days, not just a queen— to demonstrate her approval and support for Michelle's actions. A way to re-emphasize to the rest of the galaxy, and especially to the Solarian League, that the Star Empire of Manticore had no intention of backing down before the threat of the League's massive economic and military power. Michelle was confident her family connections had played the smallest part in the decision. She'd have been even happier if she could have been certain they'd played no part at all, but she happened to live in the real universe— and politics and diplomacy would always be politics and diplomacy. That was one reason she'd chosen the Navy instead of going into politics herself. Yet there was another aspect to it as well, and she knew it. If Elizabeth was going to retain her in command of Tenth Fleet, and it would have been impossible to relieve Michelle without looking like Manticore was backing down, Michelle needed the rank to go with the growing strength of her command— no fewer than four vice-admirals, all senior to her, had been added to Tenth Fleet over the last month or so. It was always awkward when a junior commanded a senior, so the admiralty had cut this particular Gordian knot by once again promoting Michelle out of the zone, which was why, in two days' time, she'd be exchanging the pair of stars on each point of her collar for a trio and replacing the three broad rings on her uniform cuffs with four which, at the tender age for a prolonged society of only 64, was a meteoric rise indeed. Unfortunately, even with the number of flag officers being added to it, Tenth Fleet remained badly under strength for its obligations. With upwards of a dozen star systems to defend, spread throughout an area of responsibility which stretched over 230 light-years from the Lynx Terminus to the Scarlet System— and 400 from Tillerman to Celebrant, she could have wished for at least twice her assigned order of battle. And that would have been if she'd been worried about defending it against any reasonably-sized foe rather than the Solarian League. But whatever she could have wished, her total strength, after the dust settled, was only 77 hyper-capable combatants. On the other hand, 20 of those were Sealax, which gave her just over 2,000 light attack craft and present-generation Manticoran lacks were nothing to sneer at, especially against someone whose designs were as obsolescent or even outright obsolete as the SLNs had demonstrated themselves to be. The Sollies still might not be prepared to accept that anything as small as a lack could possibly threaten a capital ship, but if they did think that, and if they attempted to prove it, 
they'd be sailing into a universe of hurt. The only problem was that what happened to them wasn't going to keep a lot of Michelle Henke's spacers from getting killed right along with them. And not a single Apollo-capable unit in sight, she thought glumly, not one. Not that I can really argue with the Admiralty's decisions after what happened to the home system. None of the follow-up dispatches had made any effort to hide the terrifying severity of the blow Manticore's industrial capability had suffered. The sheer scale of the Yawada strike's loss of life had been horrifying, but to make it even worse, it had been concentrated in the sectors of the Star Empire's labor force most essential to supporting the Navy. Effectively, every Manticoran shipyard was simply gone. Even the production lines, which had supplied the fleet with missiles, had been destroyed. The ships Manticora had, and the missiles which had already been manufactured, were all the Star Empire was going to have for a long, long time, and the defense of the home system, its population, and what remained of its industrial base, not to mention the wormhole junction, which was absolutely essential to Manticora's strategic survival, had to take priority over almost any other consideration— especially since Solarian's strategic doctrine was uncompromisingly oriented around seeking a knockout blow by crushing the capital system of any star nation foolish enough to cross swords with the League. Under those circumstances, the two squadrons of Keyhole 2-equipped pod-laying super-dreadnoughts Michelle had been promised had been recalled to the home system almost before they'd arrived in Spindle. Only ships with the Keyhole 2 control platforms could fully utilize the FTL telemetry links of the Mark 23E multi-drive missiles, which were the heart of the Apollo system, and all of them, and all of the Navy's existing store of Mark 23Es, were desperately needed to defend the Manticore binary system. In partial exchange, she'd gotten 20 Keyhole 1 SDPs, and in terms of combat power, that was a pretty impressive consolation prize. No, they couldn't use Apollo— but they could handle more missiles than any Solarian super-dreadnought could even dream of firing. Their own missile defenses were incomparably better than anything the other side might have, and while they weren't equipped with the Mark 23E control missiles, the standard Mark 23s in their magazines enormously outranged any Solarian weapon. Accuracy at extreme ranges was going to be much poorer than it would have been using Apollo, yet the missile storm they could bring down on any opponent would be devastating— and, fortunately, sixteen months had passed between Haven's Operation Beatrice and the Yawata strike. The tempo of combat had dropped virtually to nothing during that time period as well, which meant there'd be no real ammunition expenditures to cut into those six months' worth of wartime-rate missile production, and that meant the Royal Manticoran Navy had a lot of those standard Mark 23s already produced and distributed to the fleet. It wasn't that Michelle entertained any doubts about what would happen to any Solarian admiral unwise enough to confront her combat power in space. The problem was that she had so much space to protect. She couldn't possibly be everywhere she needed to be in sufficient strength to prevent an audacious Solarian flag officer from avoiding her combat power and carrying out devastating—there was that word again—raids on the infrastructure of the system she was responsible for defending. Then there was the interesting question of just what sort of reinforcements the Sollies might have en route to the Quadrant. And, for that matter, the even more interesting question, 
Assuming her own suspicions about who'd been pulling the puppet strings behind the current catastrophe were correct, of what Manpower and Mesa might have up their collective sleeve. And finally, there was the body blow to the priority she'd been originally promised on the new Mark 16-equipped units. News of the Zunker incident had reached Spindle aboard a Navy dispatch boat only this morning, and Michelle found herself almost equally impressed by Captain Ivanov's tactics and by the unwanted discretion shown by the Solarian flag officer involved. The confrontation had also confirmed, or reconfirmed, perhaps, the tactical superiority the Mark 16 conferred upon the RMN's lighter units. Unfortunately, Michelle was certain there'd been other Zunker incidents in the three weeks since the original, and every one of them would only increase Admiralty House's demands for additional Mark 16-capable vessels, especially given the decision to go ahead and implement Leakuan II. She could hardly fault the Admiralty for that priority, but Leakuan II obviously required a lot of relatively fast, relatively well-armed, hyper-capable platforms, which, when she came down to it, was pretty much an exact description of the Nikes, Saganami Seas, and Rollins, which in turn explained why the light combatants she'd expected to see were now going elsewhere at high rates of speed. It's an imperfect universe, Mike, she told herself tartly. Deal with it. She snorted again, then squared her shoulders, hauled her hands out of her pockets, turned and marched back to her workstation. She picked up the cup of coffee Chris Billingsley had left for her and settled into her work chair. She and Augustus Kumalo were scheduled to meet tomorrow with Governor Medusa, Prime Minister Joaquim Alcazar, Minister of War Henry Kreitzman, and the other senior members of Alcazar's war cabinet to discuss her new deployment plan. Under the circumstances, she thought as she started punching up the appropriate files, it probably behooved her to have a deployment plan to discuss. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 8, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Tony Weiskopf, Laura Haywood Corey, and composer Ruth Judkowitz. Super resonant impeller wedges of gravimetric cavitation to Tom Pope, Thomas Maroney, Mark Guttis, Chris Wave, Joel Presby, and Gina Richardson, all members of BU9. Please join us next time here at the pounding heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.